From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Today we talk with two people who, between them, have six decades of experience in the restaurant industry about how they are working to improve pay and conditions for restaurant workers and what life is like from inside the kitchen and behind the scenes. Later in the hour, Charlotte restaurant owner and entrepreneur chef Samit Diminich is working to create a livable work-life balance for his employees while also moving away from the restaurant worker pay structures of the past. Nowadays, we call it the livable wage, and there's that threshold. And, you know, generally speaking, if you were new to the industry or you hadn't, quote-unquote, like, made it, chances are you weren't making the threshold. Well, first, we're talking with Jen Hampton. Jen is also an industry insider, having worked in food service for 31 years. In 2021, she was a founder of Asheville Food and Beverage United. Jen, welcome to Do South. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You know, I'd like to start with just how you got your first job in the food service industry. <laughs> oh, wow. First job I had in the food service industry. Um, my uncle told I needed a job. My uncle told me the truck stop down the road was hiring waitresses, which is what we called ourselves back then. So I just got a job as a waitress and raised my kids and never had time to really do much else besides stay in the industry. It's been a while. Uh, if you're willing to share, mm-hmm. would you tell us if you remember what you were making uh, and was it all tips? How, how much did it fluctuate? Tell us a little bit about your your pay back then. Yeah, I do remember. It was $2.03 at that time um, and making tips. I don't remember how much tips I made. It was approximately a dollar a table. So it wasn't awesome money at all, but uh yeah, and that that's usually, you know, how it's been for the past 31 years is it's all tips. All tips. So what kinds of restaurants mm-hmm. are we talking about? You know, you mentioned the truck stop. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when I think of the pay structure, you know, how was that? And how is there, you know, do you remember any conversation about, like, changing this? Like, you know, I, I need to make more and is everybody all right with this? Um, no, not until about that, when I got that job at the truck stop, it was 1992, um, and I just figured that's how it is. That's just the way things are. Um, didn't think that it was any different. But then in 2003, I moved to Seattle, Washington, and worked at an Applebee's there as a server and made $10 an hour because that was the state minimum wage, and it blew my mind. I didn't know that most of us down here in the South um, were the only people making 213 or 203 an hour um, so that's when I really started thinking about it. And you moved back? I mean, you, I le- you left I Seattle <laughs> and you came back here? Yeah, well, I came. I was in South Texas is where I came from. So coming from South Texas to Seattle, Washington was a huge culture shock. And it was rainy and cold and dark. And, you know, I just couldn't do it. I had to go back to Texas for a while. And then I came out to, uh, to North Carolina. So, so this is the professional side of things. Uh, if you would, bridge for us or weave in for us. You're also a parent at this time. And this is, I, I don't imagine that working at Applebee's is a nine to five, right? Like, um, tell us a little no. bit about child care and, and scheduling kind of that village of support uh, around your work. Yeah. So I, I, a lot of times in San Antonio is where I was uh, working at the truck stop. And then when I came back from Seattle, worked at Applebee's in, in San Antonio and, other cafes and restaurants and 
it just depended, you know, like sometimes I would take my kids to work with me and they would sit at the server table and hang out there for hours on end. Or, you know, if they were in school, sometimes they would just have to go home and and stay home by themselves starting around age nine. Um, So, you know, I couldn't afford daycare and there's not much of a social safety net um, down here, as you know. And so I would have to rely on relatives or friends to help out whenever possible or, like I said, take my kids to to work with me or leave them at home alone, which was, you know, terrifying to leave my kids at home. But I had to, you know, earn a living to pay our rent and groceries and all of that. Well, we're speaking with Jen Hampton. Um, She's a founder of Asheville Food and Beverage United. And so how would you say things changed over these three decades? Um, Did they get better, really better, or are we sort of at the same point? We're pretty much at the same point. Like I said, in 1992 when I started, it was $2.03 an hour was the tipped minimum wage, and now it's $2.13 an hour. Um, So it really hasn't changed much um, as far as the pay structure goes, except for there are some standouts who do pay at least minimum wage, or some of them pay like $5 an hour, which is considered good compared to $2.13. But you know, down here in the South, that, that's just how it is right now. Um, and I do hear people wanting to change that. I have heard a lot more um, conversations around abolishing the tip minimum wage in the past year or so. I have admittedly never worked in the service industry. I've had lots of different jobs in my life, but uh, I mean, I've got a sense of it. I certainly have friends and family members who have, but uh, if you would illustrate for us, please, what your experience was like, if there are uh, any stories that come to mind or anecdotes to kind of underscore, uh, I mean, you've stayed in it for 31 years, so certainly there's some um, some good elements I trust, but, but tell us about your mm-hmm. time in the service industry. Yeah, sure. So I would I would first off say the, the reason I stayed in the industry is because I didn't have time to go to college or pursue some other career because I had my first child in high school and got married shortly thereafter and had two more children and just I couldn't find the time to complete my education. So restaurant work was all I knew. And as the years passed by, that became pretty much the only thing I could do because that was all of my experience. So I wouldn't say, and I would say, yeah, there are some good things. There's the camaraderie with other service industry folks who, you know, we we have been through the same stuff. We see the same, you know, part of society and really have this, this deep community, especially here in Asheville. So that's one thing that's really great about it is I love the, the community of service workers. But I'd say stories that stand out to me was one of the first times that I got a paycheck for service, for being a server, was in Washington, Seattle. And it was just life-changing just to be able to have an actual paycheck because all of my other jobs in Texas and in Asheville as a server, I didn't get a paycheck because most of that two thirteen an hour went to paying taxes. Um, so you would never get a paycheck, which I found to be just wild. You they know? would just give you cash at the end of the day? Is you would just have saying? your tips. Yeah, oh, you yeah. would just take your cash tips and you would never get an actual paycheck, like I said, because that, that two thirteen an hour that the employer pays you goes mostly to paying taxes on your tips. Well, somebody was smart there. <clears throat> I guess they're still <laughs> smart. How do you get people to yeah. work for you and not pay them? Oh, this is exactly. how you do it. Yeah. Yep. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, like I said, it's we're, we're one of only 12 states in the nation that still pays $2.13 an hour for servers. There are some that pay sub-minimum still, um, but like I said, only 12 that are still at $2.13 an hour. So it's, you know, there's a model out there that can, can work. I've seen it work in other states, and we just need to figure out how it works and educate business owners down here on how to do it so that we can start paying our employees. Because, you know, we shouldn't have to, and, and I, I think about this an awful lot, is that it's like an emotional labor because you have to put on this performance. You have to put up with whatever the customer says to you, especially when it's unwanted, you know, sexual harassment sort of things that you just have to smile and take it because if you don't, you won't get a tip and you're not getting paid and you actually lose money serving a table when they don't tip you properly. Ugh, is I guess my yeah. initial kind of <laughs> visceral response to that. Has there ever been a time where, I don't know, somebody says something across the line or I, I don't know. I, have you ever responded kind of out of character for your for yourself? Like, is it did, did you ever just Instead, go enough? Forget the tip. Yeah, forget I'm, the tip. Yeah. Like, here's a, here's a, here's a <laughs> glass of water in your face because you're a jerk. <laughs> um, no, actually, no, I never did that because you know it, it was survival. You know, like I I was I'm, I'm a, I, we had a focus group recently with other service workers to talk about these issues, and what I was surprised to find out or realize is that all of us were kind of like people pleasers. You know, because we we had to be. So no, I I never did that. Um, I wanted to. I would go in the back and cry um, sometimes, or you know, just go home after twelve hours of serving people and just feel so depleted, like have no emotional. Um, I can't even think of the word I'm trying to say. You just have no no capacity to to be present in your life after having to put on that show for so long and just take so much from everybody. We've got to take a quick break in a minute, but I want to try to sneak in one more question here, Jen. Where did you derive support from? Like who helped you through those moments? Was it just, you, you had to do it, you had to make the money or were there people who were, you know, kind of propping you up? Well, I would say coworkers um, propping you up during those moments because we understand, you know, we've all been through it and we, we, can help each other, comfort each other, joke about it, you know, just listen and vent and go outside on a smoke break and just cuss out the customer back there, you know, because <laughs> um, you can't do it in, 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 in your job. You might lose your job um, for bad customer service, and at least you'll lose your tips at the very least. That's Jen Hampton, a founder of Asheville Food and Beverage United, who worked in food service for more than 30 years. We'll continue our conversation with her after the break. And Jen talked about tipping right there, which is obviously a huge part of the restaurant industry. And in an upcoming conversation, we're going to delve deep into its history, explore current tipping trends, as well as efforts to take tipping out of the equation altogether. And we want to hear from you. What's your experience with tipping these days as a customer? Are you a career restaurant worker who has ideas on how to make pay better and more sustainable? Are you an owner experimenting with new ways to reach a living wage for your employees? Please send us an email or better yet, attach a voice memo to an email and we may play or read that on the air. Send it to DoSouth at WUNC.org. You're listening to Do South on North Carolina Public Radio. Welcome back to Do South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. 
We're speaking with Jen Hampton, who worked in restaurants for more than 30 years before becoming an organizer and co-founder with Asheville Food and Beverage United. We're talking about her life as a restaurant worker and also, we're going to get there now, the activism that she's taking part in. So let's go to the pandemic. Four years ago, and everybody's life is upended. What was life like for you in February 2020 as a restaurant worker, and then, you know, four, six weeks later in March of 2020 as a, as a restaurant worker? Well, in February of 2020, I was working in the kitchen um, after 25 years of working front of the house, which is server, bartender, dealing with customers. I'd had enough of that. I was tired of working for tips and selling my niceness for that, so I just worked in the kitchen. And things were going good. It was starting to pick up for tourist season here in Asheville. It was real busy. And then suddenly in March, we shut down. I was making $10 an hour in 2020 in February um, as a line cook, barely making it, living in public housing, but um, was making it. And I was happier being in the back, uh, not having to face customers all all day long. So, and then... March 2020 hit, you know, Mm -hmm. the pandemic, everything shut down. And like you say, maybe things were starting to build back up, but everybody didn't go back to work. I even know places that I used to frequent and they're still open half the day. You know, they just said workers, Mm -hmm. they say they can't find workers, but I, um, (laughs) I wonder how that's affected you and the people that you know. Well, um, I guess going back to March of 2020, when we closed down, many of the restaurants, I would say most of the restaurants in Asheville closed down, um, at least for about a month. My restaurant where I worked closed down. We didn't open back up till August. Um, But we were one of the first ones to close down. So we were able to get on unemployment right away. And that was great, you know, for a couple of reasons, because the unemployment insurance that they they gave us that extra $600 a week we were actually making a living wage and that was that was mind blowing it was mm-hmm. astonishing to be able to have money to pay my bills and buy groceries and you know put money aside um so that was like a sneak peek like a little taste of what it could be like if people made that much money to live on um and then also another thing that happened is i had time to be on facebook instead of working all the time and discovered the Asheville F&B Tribe Facebook group, which is a private Facebook group for people who work in the food and beverage industry. And that's really what changed everything for me, was seeing so many people and having conversations around the issues that we were facing and realizing that everything that I had internalized as my own fault was actually systemic issues that everybody was facing. Hmm. So this kind of crystallizes things and mobilizes Mm -hmm. things for you. Take us forward what happens from there how are you how are you organizing or what are you what are you trying to do from this point forward in the story well at that point i didn't know what to do i had recently discovered bernie sanders and listening to that message about you know wor- worker advocacy and you, you know you got into things politics that be human rights. you are you're I in did. activism now <laughs> you are ready i did uh-huh. I discovered that, and I was like, oh, who is this guy? What? You know, and I got fired up because I started realizing, like I said, that everybody was facing these issues, and that made me mad. I was like, this is not right. We got to do something. And then I just kept, you know, interacting with people and listening to stories, and then in March of 2021, somebody posted on that group, 
if you're interested in learning how or learning about organizing restaurant workers, come to this meeting. And so I went to that meeting. There was like 30 people there. We heard from some people in the Teamsters and the Workers' Assembly, which I now lead our chapter of that too. And I said, okay, well, I don't know what we want to do, but I'm going to keep coming to this meeting. And we kept meeting on a monthly basis for about a year. And the, the group number whittled down to about seven of us. And we kind of announced ourselves to the world that we're here and we're organizing, and we're going to make changes. So you never went back to working in a restaurant? I did, yeah. Um, okay. We opened back up at the restaurant I worked at in August and um, of 2021. And I just kept working there, but I was also organizing, and I just kept being an organizer for Asheville Food and Beverage United on my days off and actually during work, you know, just talking to people and um going to online training classes, and then I went to the Labor Notes Conference in 2022 in the summer, and after that, and came back and applied everything I learned, and that's when things really blew up, and we arrived on the scene hmm. and became kind of public knowledge. Jen Hampton, an organizer with Asheville Food and Beverage United, is here with us on Due South. Uh, tell us about that stick of dynamite. Uh, proverbially speaking, blowing up. You say you're on the scene. People are aware of it. What are some mm-hmm. of the efforts that AFB implements and is pursuing there in 2021, 2022, and, and even into last year? Yeah, that's a great question. So in 2021, we were just still kind of trying to figure out what do we even want to do? What is this thing we're putting together? And then uh, one of my organizing mentors told me about the Labor Notes Conference, and I had didn't know much at all about organizing. So I went to that conference I attended um, 10 workshops over that weekend and just wrote down everything I could and then came back and started canvassing, which I would just go out um, walking around downtown and go into restaurants and talk to workers and say, hey, we're trying to organize this thing, Asheville Food and Beverage United, and telling them about our first campaign, which was around living wages, paid sick time, and fair scheduling. We called it the fair deal for food and beverage workers. Um, And in my canvassing and talking to workers and listening to them, I discovered that while they were concerned about those issues in the Fair Deal campaign, they were much more concerned about the cost and safety associated with parking when they go to work downtown. So that that came up as like a widely and deeply felt issue amongst people. So we launched a campaign, a petition to get free or reduced parking for downtown workers And that petition got 2,100 signatures in three weeks. We had two dozen people volunteer to go out and get petition signatures. Um, And then we had a big rally on September of 2022 at the courthouse and went to the county commissioners because they have um, publicly owned parking decks downtown. Mm -hmm. Long story short, at the end of that year, they implemented a pilot program called Reduced Parking for Downtown Workers, where downtown workers could pay $40 a month for parking instead of up to $200 a month that people were paying just to park when they go to work. Leonid, did you hear that? that $200 a, big, a month that's to a, park to that's work? That's a big win. I mean, mm, I would huge. say um, it should should have been an addictive win for <laughs> food service workers mm-hmm. in Asheville because we know a lot of people go there on vacation and what do they want to do? They want to eat, drink, and party. I, I know. Food up in I Nashville. have family there, and I go there for my family reunions every other year. So <laughs> uh, I definitely know that that area. So so when I think of this organization, 
if you could clarify, are these workers in fast food restaurants or chain restaurants? So who can be included in this, um, I guess, service food service union? Well, um, we have extended it to be anybody that works in any service-related job. So most of our members are um, workers at local independent coffee places, restaurants, and breweries and bars. And there's another union called Union of Southern Service Workers, and their focus is mainly fast food um, workers. So if I meet people in the fast food industry, I usually will send them to USSW because they are, you know, well-versed in that and they have the resources to fight these big corporate chains more than, than we do right now. But they're welcome to join us if they want to, absolutely. But our, like I said, our union mostly consists of independent businesses. Jen Hampton here with us on Do South. Jen, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but what I'd love to do is hear from you on your platform, so to speak. Like if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and do two or three things that would alter this industry from your standpoint, whether it's tipping or service fees uh, or something else, please tell us what's kind of top of mind and highest priority for you. I would say wages is the top priority and paid time off. Um, we don't get paid time off. We, I had to go to work with COVID twice because I couldn't miss any more work. Um, the first time I got COVID, I almost was evicted because I lost two weeks worth of pay. Um, and I know so many people who have, and, and before COVID, I always just went to work sick and so did everybody else because it's just expected and you can't afford not to. So I would say that getting rid of the tipped wage and raising the minimum wage to a living wage would be the first priority. And then paid time off is definitely right up there. If not, you know, tied for the number one spot, a very close number two. Well, Jen, thank you for being so honest and vulnerable and mm -hmm. telling us your story today. Jen Hampton, a founder and organizer with Asheville Food and Beverage United. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our next guest here on Hugh South has also been a part of a movement in his local restaurant community. Sam Dimonich is a Charlotte-based chef, and in early 2023, he opened up Restaurant Constance, named after his daughter. Worker pay is an issue you'll hear is very important to him. You are sometimes called Chef Sam, so may we call you Chef Sam? Absolutely. All right, Chef Sam. Uh, among your several culinary projects is Constance, a Charlotte restaurant that opened in January of last year. I think it's fairly well understood this is a hard industry with, with thin profit margins, a big, broad, maybe dangerous question to start. How is Constance doing, the restaurant? Constance is do the restaurant Constance is doing fantastic. It, We're super, super happy about it. Um, Super happy about the community support. We just celebrated one year. So you know when it, you know what? Congratulations! You're right it's because you know when it came to starting this new business, how were you thinking about worker pay? So there's a there's a lot to unpack there. It's it, so really I think whenever you think about compensation and you know and taking care of our, our colleagues in the industry, we have to think about what's important to us. And what's important to us is to make sure that that they are the most important people in the room, you know, and that is, that is completely opposite of the philosophy that I grew up with and that I was trained in, you know, it was always the customer is always right. The customer, we, you know, we, we bend over backwards to make the customer happy or the client happy. And, and 
quote unquote, they were the most important people in the room. And so our philosophy is completely opposite of what I grew up with. And the reason is, is that we have to, so we have to take the, what happened in the pandemic into consideration and 11 million of us lost our jobs. And, um, and that'll change your way of thinking, you know, when, whenever you're, you're, you, you're out of a job and the job that, um, that you were laid off from was one that you care deeply about and you care deeply about the people that are in it with you. It alters, I think, the way you think, think about things and, um, you know, and, and how you think about what the industry should look like, you know? And so, um, after the pandemic, I started a business in my apartment and it was initially just a holdover scenario where I could support farmers and take care of myself and my children. And, um, it was only a holdover until my, the restaurant I left opened back up, but, uh, it actually saw, uh, immediate success and I never had to go back. And the rest of that's kind of history, but there were several questions I had to ask myself whenever we were kind of moving through the early stages is, is what, you know, what were my intentions? What's important to me and what had, like, how does that show up? You know? And so I took all of those um, questions into consideration as we, as we move forward with the business as we know it. You said this is really different from how you grew up, you know, mm-hmm. and when you even considering, you know, how to pay workers because how you grew up, you know, you've been, your family has been in the restaurant business or the food business a long time. So you probably weren't even paid as a child when you were cooking and cleaning. You <laughs> how know, did you t- know? I know. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Br- break it down for us if you would, Chef Sam. Uh, how are people historically typically paid within the restaurant industry? There's that threshold where, you know, we call it nowadays, we call it the livable wage and there's that threshold. And, you know, generally speaking, if you were, if you were new to the industry or you hadn't quote unquote, like made it, chances are you weren't making the threshold. And so you would have to have a second job and, you know, you wind up just diluting yourself, you know, with, with very little hope on, you know, on, on kind of crossing that. I guess that financial health line, sort of speak, but also that was like just the way it was, you know, and, and for many people, you know, food and beverage, the hospitality industries, we knew it back then could not be a sustainable source and could not be your future. So it became, you know, stepping stone opportunities for other things. And and even though it would be a stepping stone situation for people who really loved it and would have loved to have made a career out of it, it couldn't because of, you know, the financial insecurities that are attached to it. So full disclosure, I've never worked in the service industry before. What? Here's, uh, I, I know, I know, but if you would, if you meet me and my esteemed colleague here will tell you that I'm not patient enough to work in the service industry, they would run me out of town within probably one busy weekend night. Uh, but let me set it up this way. My and, understanding and I got fired it, from McDonald's in high school. Oh, so. ooh, there's a story we're going to revisit. Mm-hmm. That's almost another 20 minutes right there. Surely is. Fired from McD's. Thank you mm-hmm. for the disclosure. Um, so Sam, here's, I guess, my outsider's framing of it, I want you to kind of fill in the gaps here. My understanding of it is if you're a waiter or waitress, you are earning whatever it is, $2.36 an hour plus Correct. tips. Correct. Um, then there's the, the the front staff, the visible staff you see, and then, of course, all the people behind the scenes who are uh, making a restaurant sizzle. What's the difference there between maybe tip staff versus uh, back of the house? It, you know, it's funny you say that. Like, so at Restaurant Constance, for example, we, we've doubled that. And so... If a server has an off week, you know, and we've already seen <laughs> what life is like in the industry, right? I mean, pandemic, um, weather challenges, especially here in the Carolinas, you know, th- there's there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of variables and and what uh, a you know a week's sales projection will look like and and how that affects it. And so, if a server has an off week, 
uh, at the very minimum, they know that they're going to have double the industry average on their on their paycheck. Like that's guaranteed. So 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 that's 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 one of the steps uh, that we've taken that I've taken that, that shows up. And and also it's symbolic that you know we invest in our people. We invest in the people that are on the crew and that are on the team. And 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 there's something to be said for that. There's confidence and security and coming to work, knowing that you're going to be seen, you're going to be heard, and you're going to be taken care of. Um, as for the back of the house, you know we we have you know, we have our metrics, you know, what is it, what does it cost to live in Charlotte? What does it cost to have a car and live in Charlotte? What does it cost to have, you know, one child and, and live in Charlotte? And so we take all that in consideration on how we consider our pay scales. And, you know, and, and that's something I'm super proud of. If you're comfortable, will you just give us a little bit more there? Are you trying to achieve 15 an hour, 20 an hour? I don't oh, yeah. live in no, Charlotte. No, no. Yeah. Nobody can live off $15 an hour. So you have to look at it on, on an annual basis, you know, and, and apply what, what position it is and specific qualifications, but for the most part, we start um, at 20 or above, $20 an hour or above. And then just from what a week looks like is that, you know, the people that work for the restaurant work for four day weeks, you know, and so with the occasional fifth, but, and, and then on top of that, we close the restaurant town Sundays and Mondays so that our team can have a Sunday, like a weekend day off, which is completely unheard of in, in, in the industry you know, and then a Monday. So you have a Sunday, you know, so if, if family or football is your thing, you have time to spend with them and watch your games. And then Mondays, you know, if you have business to take care of, you have a Monday off. We're not going to call you in. I'm not going to call you in on a, um, you know, on a Sunday at 10 a.m. for a brunch service that somebody else didn't show up for because they've been burnt out. So that's our model. And, and um, you know, I'm super proud of it. I know my leadership team is super proud of it. And, um, you know, and we're getting results. You know, the people that are on the team have expressed how happy and secure they feel when they come to work. And, you know, and, and so we like to think of that as like the 10,000 foot, 10,000 foot change, but there's also people in the industry, you know, we have a lot of visibility here in Charlotte. We've, we've been recognized and we're lucky enough to receive some accolades. So I know that the industry professionals, my colleagues in the area are watching this as well. So that's like a 10,000 feet change. And then the 30,000 foot change, we like to call it. So when I think of your your workplace, is it um, split between, you know, some people are considered what we know full-time and then some are part-time? Because I wonder what the percentage, the breakdown is at your place. Uh, yeah, it's 90% full-time. 90% full-time. Yeah, I have two students, two culinary students. Chef Sam told us starting kitchen wages with his business average out to about $20 an hour, mostly higher than that, but the culinary students make slightly less. So the full-time kitchen positions are at $40,000 a year with earned increases along the way. Chef Sam says servers bring in about $75,000 a year, including tips. And he says he has not considered unionizing. More from Chef Sam Dimonich on his journey as a chef and as a person and how his experiences fuel his efforts to pay a living wage to his workers. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Due South continues in a moment.
Welcome back. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. We're talking this hour about restaurant pay and worker conditions and also about life in the restaurant industry. Our guest is Chef Sam Dimonich, owner of Restaurant Constance in Charlotte, which has received accolades left and right since it opened last year. And that's not Chef Sam's only venture. He started Your Farms, Your Table during the pandemic, sourcing ingredients from local farmers and creating meals for eating at home. We'll hear about how that idea was sparked later in our conversation. But we wanted to know first how his personal story really informs his approach to worker pay. You know, so I grew up in a restaurant family and um, I'm one of five. Uh, I have four siblings and, you know, coming up in the restaurant in a restaurant family, you were expected to work. And that's, that's kind of the way it was, but it was such a blessing, you know, to have, you know, this, those early influences of collaboration and teamwork and work ethic. And, um, I think a value system that, um, we've all, I speak on behalf of my siblings, we've all held onto and applied in our lives. Although I'm the only one that's still in the hospitality business. They've all ventured off and, and uh, some are in medicine, some are in uh, education and um, philanthropy and all that. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it was an incredible way to come up. And, and so I consider myself a very, very, uh, I have a very blue collar approach to what I do. I'm very hands on, you know, and, and I attribute that to kind of how I came up and, and the way I was taught how to operate. And, um, you know, now as as a small business owner, as an entrepreneur, it definitely pays dividends whenever, you know, we're inside the four walls and we're in production or we're in prep, you know, just from like a, an impression standpoint. It's funny, I was talking to one of my chefs last night about, um, you know, just being in the moment really and and making sure that we are being assertive in, um, in our responsibilities and always looking three or four steps ahead of what we're doing now you know, so that we're constantly game planning and laying the foundation for a successful day. We want to win the day every day. Mm. What would be a highlight of your career? I mean, I just have to bring up when you were on Beat Bobby Flay. <laughs> All right, Chef, great job. Made through round one. How are you feeling about round two? Very good. Very confident. What are we cooking tonight? What's your signature dish? My signature dish is lobster risotto. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, it's interesting. You know, I, I've been sober now for a little over nine years. And so that was that was one of those moments. We, we filmed that in 2019. That was one of those moments where, you know, just being sober and living a recovered life really showed up because whenever the Food Network asked me to do that, I politely said, thanks, but no thanks. Mm. You know, I have this other thing going on. I was, I was in, uh, immersed in, in the restaurant that I was working at the time. And a bunch of my buddies, my fellowship buddies were like, dude, you need to do this, man. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I wound up, you know, I wound up changing gears and, and accepting, you know, the application. And luckily I made it through and um, I went up to film in, in May of 2019. Sam, why is this your signature dish? We have a seafood based cuisine in South Carolina. And, um, you know, we tried to highlight local as possible. We use this rice. I didn't know at the time that it would, it would alter my life in ways that um, it has, but it was just a special day and I was able to come out on top, beat Bobby. Yes. Um, Bob Saget was in, uh, he was one of the judges that day, God rest his soul. But he was hilarious and we had fun. And um, I tell you what, it, you know, for a 27 minute show, we, that took like 14, 15 hours. Wow. And, and so it was That's cool. That's it. it was, it was so much fun, but it didn't air. It didn't wind up airing until January 27, 2020. 
And soon after that, obviously in March of, of 2020, when the world came to a screeching halt and, um, and I had to start this new, I had Crazy. this new idea for a business. Yeah. I had this new audience, um, that I could reach and, um, they helped support me, man. They've been carrying me ever since. Well, it sounds like you're certainly thriving in this moment. Chef Sam here with us on Do South. Leonita and I are uh, learning a little bit more about compensation methods and uh, tools, framing, and also Chef Sam's personal story. To the extent you're comfortable, I want to go back uh, the better part of a decade here. You mentioned being sober now mm-hmm. for nine years. Um, mm-hmm. This has been, and I'm, I'm excited to use this word, but this has been a crescendo for you. Things have changed and improved, but to the extent you're comfortable, if you'll take us back to, you know, um, where you were uh, almost a decade ago and what it was that kind of turned things for you. Well, you know, I mentioned coming up in the restaurants uh, with, with my family, you know, my dad was a cook, he was a chef and, um, and we had a restaurant full of cooks. And uh, what was cool about that experience is I get to learn. <laughs> what also happened was like, you know, and this was just the way it was. This was accepted behavior was that people would, you know, would drink either during their shift or, or right after, you know, that's, that's when I first crossed paths with drugs and alcohol that became, you know, kind of, there, there, there's an attachment there with cooking and, and like working hard and partying hard, living hard, you know, so that was a part of my life for, for three decades, 30 years. I was aware of it, you know, and there were periods of abstinence and even some sobriety, but there was, you know, I, I, I fought it and I, I couldn't win it. And no matter what happened, no matter where, where I was, no matter how many children I had, no matter how much money I made, I could not, I just could not outrun uh, alcoholism and addiction. And so in the fall of 2014, I'd been on the streets as a, as a homeless person for, for a year, year and a half. And I was lucky enough to where uh, I got swept off and, uh, and into a treatment facility. And there and only then and only then um, was I able to really, really, really commit myself to the program and action of recovery. And so that was the beginning. And here I am now, nine years and change. And, you know, I'm grateful for every minute of it. And, um, you know, as it, as it couples with the industry, I'm actually the Charlotte chapter leader for a fellowship called Ben's Friends. And Ben's Friends um, is a coalition of uh, food and beverage professionals that are either sober or seeking sobriety. And we meet in person once a week, and but we have Zoom meetings seven days a week, sometimes multiple times a day. And, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, being sober and, and maintaining sobriety is my number one priority. And from that, everything else, you know, has, has kind of come. So I love it. You know, if you'd have asked me in the fall of 2014, what my life would look like nine years later, not in a million years, would I be able to say, yeah, I want to be a restaurant owner and um, employ 30 people and pay them a livable wage and, and be a change agent for the hospitality industry. So it's been pretty incredible. Wow. So you've made it through some very difficult times mm-hmm. and then you clean yourself up, you beat Bobby Flay, and then we get to the pandemic. Yeah, we get to the pandemic. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting for me. And, and I've heard this from other professionals as well. Is like, I didn't see it coming. And, you know, and the, the reason why I didn't see it coming is because, you know, I was just immersed in the, in the restaurant. I was literally thinking about our summer menu whenever, um, you know, we got the call that we we're going to shut down. And um, I'd heard a little bit about it, but I didn't think it was that serious. You know, so Tuesday, I think it was March 17th, 2020. You know, everybody was laid off. And I went home that day and actually, you know, I went to Amazon and, and got a job in the warehouse. And a lot of people don't know that, but I, I went straight to it. Amazon. Yeah. I went to Amazon and, and got a job in the warehouse, but they couldn't start me for two weeks, uh, two weeks later. And, and um, 
you know, I was a, I was a dad too, and I wasn't sick and I didn't see any reason why I couldn't just get to work. And so I went home and the next day I got a call from a farmer and he was a good friend of mine and, um, he just didn't know what he was going to do. Like, you know, he had just harvested spring veg and had summer in the ground and, but also just lost 35 wholesale accounts because all the restaurants here in Charlotte, uh, had to shut down. And, and so, you know, the wheel started spinning then. And, and then I think the next day I was actually at a friend's house, uh, and I was cooking on the grill and actually had some of that farmer's vegetables on the grill. And I, I remember just looking at the grill and looking at veggies and on one side and, and then some pro some steak on the other side. And, and I was like, what if I could just create a menu, like go to his farm and, and buy whatever he had and, and create a three course menu. I could box it, bag it, uh, I could cook it, box it, bag it and deliver it. And so that's what I did. Are you saying the pandemic made you almost a better chef, you know, oh, yeah, in absolutely. some ways? And also did that having to do that, is that when you also started thinking about worker pay becoming very vocal in that? 100%. Because we know during that time of the pandemic, a lot of farmers, they weren't, nobody was getting paid. Nobody. Yeah. No. And and that was, that's really like that phone call changed everything for me because I couldn't imagine a world uh, without them, you know? And, um, and again, like, this is like, I, I just on the Bobby Flay show, uh, you know, things had, the way I thought about things had shifted. And then whenever the pandemic happened, and I got that phone call from him. Uh, it shifted even more. And and to be honest with you, you know, it was it was like food has has been my and cooking has been my best friend. Mm -hmm. It's been my best friend, and so I leaned into it. I leaned into what I learned in recovery. And and it's, there's a saying that we have. It's called "get out of self and into service." You know, and, and that'll right right size what's going on between the ears. And and um, for a very confusing time for myself and and many many others across the country. Uh, it was the only thing I knew to do. And so I did it. So my business model was up. If I sold 10 meals a day, six days a week mm -hmm. at $30 a meal, you know, I could take care of my children, myself and, and my pup. And, um, you know, and I didn't think much further after that, but you know, the community and, and the world and the, and the universe had other plans. And here I am three and a half, almost four years later. And we have five divisions of the business that started out in the apartment with an old set of pots and pans and a crazy business uh -huh. idea. Chef Sam here with us on Do South. I want you to square for us, if you can, how you're able to do this, right? Because it's one thing to be a change agent and foster some shift in how people are treated and compensated and prioritizing them first, which we've talked about, which is important as you've laid out. But then how do you do it? Like you can't just be altruistic and say, oh, I'm going to pay everybody 30, 40, 50 bucks an hour. Are you raising how are you doing it from just the, the financial standpoint and, and keeping these five businesses afloat? Yeah, I wish there was a simple answer to that, but I will say this. So for, for the restaurant, um, we have like every chair has a value, right? And it's excellent, you know, say it's $75 a chair. And so we have 36 seats in the restaurant. And so I have to turn that restaurant twice each day. And so one of the strategies that we implemented was we have a 90 minute seating policy. And so inside that 90 minutes, we've worked our, our tails off in the back and in the front to make sure that each guest has a complete dining experience. That means four courses, wine service, coffee service, and a beverage service, you know, you're gonna get the full experience. Everything's choreographed from steps to ticket times, execution on hot apps, execution on salads, execution on desserts. That's engineered so that we can turn the tables at least twice a night. And so that, is a revenue opportunity that supports us, our ability to support the team members. 
So how do you like DoorDash and other delivery services factor into your business, if at all? I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> and for those that don't know, or for me with a very limited understanding of it, why is that? Well, I mean, if you look at their business model, it's all take and no give. Whenever I started Your Farms Your Table, I did all kinds of research, you know, because I needed delivery drivers. So I wanted to know how much to pay a delivery driver. And I, I realized that the average delivery driver, this is in 2020, so I'm sure it's changed. But uh, back then it was like $8.07 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was me doing research in Raleigh, Atlanta, Charlotte, um, Columbia, Charleston, which is, a you know, the southeastern network of prominent cities. And I was like, that's insane. You know, that's like, how can anybody live off that? They're literally you know, living and dying by gratuities. And so whenever we started hiring delivery drivers, we doubled that. And you just started at $15 an hour uh, and then tips. And so it's it's really been, um, it's actually very motivational <laughs> when I think of <laughs> concepts like that, third, you know, especially third-party delivery service. And then as an operator, let me put it to you like this. So an operator, so... Um, uh, you know, I don't use them. We did use them in the past and it used to piss me off so bad because we would, so I would be the one to go to the farms and pick out the, the produce, take it back to the restaurant, prep cook, um, unpacks them, peels them, dices them, cooks them, preps them up. A line cook comes in, starts an entree, finishes an entree. Then uh, a manager or a chef puts everything in the to-go box, puts it in a bag, staples the bag together, makes it all, you know I mean? Makes it presentable, makes it look good. And then you hand it to a driver, <laughs> you know? And, and then... Um, we would get out of say it's a hundred bucks, you know, we would get sixty of it, and they would get forty of it. So as an operator, it's it's so overall, it's just lose lose. That's not sustainable, and that is not an investment into the community, you know, and that is not an investment into the individual. So the way you're doing things now, um, what's the impact on the customer? I guess. Um, I guess the customer is satisfied, <laughs> you know, because you say you're giving it your all to make sure their experience is worth the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, we just wrapped up our first year and I think we did um, like 17,000 guests in the restaurant. And um, the overwhelming majority of the guests that have been in our four walls have been very, very happy, yeah, incredibly happy, you know, and we were recognized as best new restaurant, best restaurant in Charlotte. I think I guess chef of the year. And so um, what we're doing is working. What we're also doing is trying to make it work better. You know, nobody's crossed the finish line here. Like, um, you know, it's, it's a, a constant, mm -hmm. a constant, some days it's like a business whack, a small business whack-a-mole where you're like, oh mm -hmm. man, I got to put these fire out. I got to figure out how to do this. And other days it's like, let's just put these two puzzle pieces together, you know, because this appears to be the solution to this, this particular scenario. Tell us about the name of this restaurant, uh, where it comes from. Yeah, it's, I named it after my daughter. <laughs> and this is super emotional because, um, you know, whenever I was, um, before I got sober, I wasn't around, you know, I wasn't around with my family. And that's an incredibly uh, difficult story to tell. But um, whenever the kind of like the reintroduction process took place, um, you know, my, my daughter, who, who was, is, she's the older of the two, uh, she was on the front lines of, of everything that I went through. And, and um, I remember whenever I was reintroduced to her and, um, we began the process of what would later become reconciliation. She she welcomed me with open arms and a big old open heart. And so I, I promised myself that uh, soon after that, if I ever opened a restaurant, it would I would name it after her. And if you're okay with me asking, how's how's y'all's relationship now? Oh, it's uh, they're my best friends. They're my best friends. I love them. And um, we have this. I, I would consider it an unconventional relationship to where 
um, were equals, you know, and uh, I learned so much from them and, and I think they learned so much from me and, um, we enjoy life together and, you know, they're both thriving, you know, and I think that's, that's, that's literally all a parent could ask for. Well, thank you so much, Chef Sam, for being with us today, a chef and entrepreneur, Sam Domenich. Did I say it? You did it. Yes. <laughs> I think I think I think I should get some lobster risotto for that. Oh, come on in. I'll break <laughs> that. I'll I'll pull that recipe up from the archives just for you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Sam. Thank y'all. Jeff, I know you want that lobster risotto. Listen, if it if it used to swim, I want it swimming in my belly. So good. Due South is a production of WUNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cold El Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Quilla. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Join us again tomorrow at 10. <laughs>